Hello and welcome to a brand new review episode of Invasion of the Podcasters. This one has been a long time coming, a lot like our previous review episode that we did. We did Zack Snyder's Justice League all the way back in March 2021 and now we are in November 2021, finally reviewing June. This is not Graham hosting this time, this is Simon. Uh, With me we have Scott and we have Laura. How are you guys? Evening. Great. Great to be here once again. Spot on. Now, Graham is not here because he has not seen or read any version of Dune and also he's otherwise occupied. So it's our intention in this podcast to convince him to get involved when it eventually comes out. We should also say that we are likely to stray into spoiler territory, definitely for the Villeneuve film, but also touch on details of what happens in other adaptations, namely the David Lynch version, John Harrison's sci-fi channel TV show, and Alejandro Hodorowsky's aborted attempt from the 1970s. But to start off the episode, I would also like to say thank you to the good folk at Film Stories who did such a lovely interview about our podcast recently and to thank them for just basically putting us out there. So we would encourage you to give them a follow at Film Stories on Twitter, and we also have Emma, or M, at Verbal Diorama, at Verbal Diorama, that's literally her Twitter handle who conducted the interview, so thank you so much for that. And also, as a tribute to Film Stories, we are going to start off our podcast with a little bit of a history lesson. It's kind of like a whistle-stop tour of how June approached the big screen, so strap in, guys. So, in 1965, Frank Herbert releases June to great critical acclaim. It's a vision of the far future in 10... How do you even say this date? 10191. 10,000... No, 8,000 years in the future, basically. And the story is of two warring houses and a corrupt imperial puppet master set against the mystical backdrop of ancient religions, colossal space creatures, and the endless wastelands of Arrakis, otherwise known as the eponymous Dune. A number of sequels and spin-off novels follow, and eventually the original 1965 novel becomes the best-selling science fiction novel of all time, which I've criminally never read. I should also ask, guys, have either of you read it? No. <laughs> Had a go at the first one, sniggered at select pages of the third one, if I'm being honest. <laughs> was that the beef swelling page? It certainly was, yes. Mm, Leader of the Seconds beef swelling, very nice, very nice indeed. But then in 1975, Alejandro Hodorowsky, after the midnight movie success of El Topo and the carte blanche Do Whatever You Want project of The Holy Mountain, is on the cusp of creating his version of the film, which is a planned runtime of 14 hours. By this point, he's already attached names to the project, like Orson Welles, Salvador Dali, Mick Jagger, Udo Kier, Amanda Lear, David Carradine, Dan O'Bannon, H.R. Giger, and even Pink Floyd to do the music for House of Trades. So that is an absolutely insane amount of both mainstream and cult clout to bring to an egomaniacally ambitious and admittedly pretty loose take on the material. But over the sake of just about $2 million that couldn't be brought to the already overinflated budget, the project collapsed and the rights passed on to Dino De Laurentiis, who in 1979 got Ridley Scott attached to the project. Now, Dan O'Bannon, the planned production designer on Hodorowsky's Dune, went on to write the script for Scott's Alien, which was what brought Scott towards Dune, which he, like one of his particularly close cinematic descendants, 
wanted to adapt into two films. The project then pinballs around until it lands in the lap of David Lynch, who has no previous attachment to the material or science fiction, but nonetheless agrees to take it on. The production is pretty troubled, uh, the edit is pretty compounded and the reshoots are hasty at best and eventually the first screen adaptation of Dune is released in 1984 to unfortunately wah, 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 negative reviews. It has gained a cult following in subsequent years of course, uh, no doubt due to fans of the novel and the later success of Lynch in his own right and also the discovery of its leading man, Mr. Cale McLachlan. But... As for the future of Dune as a franchise or a hot property, it cools off for a good 15 years or so. Then, in 2000, Dune had another adaptation for the sci-fi channel, in a three-part miniseries that gave the material more time to breathe into a narrative that ran for over four and a half hours. And off the success of that, a sequel miniseries was made in the form of Children of Dune. Oddly, better received than David Lynch's version, but I just finished the first Dune series the other day, and I've got to say, didn't get it. Uh, still, uh, the project is on the back burner in the film industry for another little while. But towards the end of the noughties, directors like Peter Berg of Hancock and Lone Survivor fame and Pierre Morel, director of Taken, are attached. But both admittedly weren't right for the project, so they let it slide. But then, in the beginning of 2017, modern sci-fi's golden boy and mainstream maverick Denis Villeneuve gets picked up for the project following the success of Arrival and the incoming hype of Blade Runner 2049, and the version we're mostly talking about today goes into production. However, it's always Villeneuve's intention that this film will be the first of two parts, bisecting Herbert's novel in a similar way to what Ridley Scott had planned in the late 70s. This was all under a lack of guarantee from Legendary and Warner Brothers that the budget would be there for it and was entirely dependent on the uncertain success of the first part of the box office. So bearing in mind, when we, us podcasters, we all saw it, we didn't really know whether we'd see the second part of the story brought to life. We suspected as much, but ultimately in this climate, you can never really predict it. So first of all, guys, question... Did that affect the way that you were watching the film? Because, you know, when you look at the Hollywood landscape currently, Marvel are planning like 20 projects ahead. Disney are also behind Star Wars and they're planning multimedia content half a decade in advance or so. So was this cloud hanging over the film for you? I felt that when it was first announced about it being available via HBO Max as well, I felt that was a vote of no confidence from Warners about the future of cinema. Mm -hmm. So... A bit of me is pleasantly surprised that two has been greenlit. Yes, me too. I was surprised precisely because of that reason as well. What did you think, Scott? Especially after Blade Runner 2049 bombed, you know, very good movie, but ultimately not kind of the success that a lot of people wanted it to be. Um, I think I think when you're watching it, you're thinking, Denis Villeneuve is basically saying, I, I dare you not to, uh, not to allow it to do a sequel. Um, yes. Basically, um, obviously, it says part one in the film. So he's basically, he's basically saying, "Come on, then." As you say, he's like the main man in sci-fi at the minute. So mm -hmm. I, I thought there was going to be a sequel. To be honest, I, I think you can tell just watching it. And um, I, I think with any with the anticipation for this, there's always going to be a lot of interest in going to see it at the cinema. So I think IMAX mm -hmm. is the only way to appreciate it fully. You're not going to get, yeah. get it on TV. No, definitely not. I should also say as well that I saw it on a regular screen and I didn't particularly think that it was 
that well projected because I've seen trailers on bigger screens and IMAX screens and it did work a lot better. I could see inside the sandworm's mouth, for example, but I couldn't actually see in the screening that I went to. So I was just a bit like, oh, this is a little bit disappointing. I should also give a caveat and say that I missed the first five minutes because the film also started early. So let's just say my one experience with Villeneuve's Dune has not been the greatest so far, but uh, I really hope to watch it again at the cinema sometime. But uh, you know what? I kind of liked it. I kind of liked it all the same. We did also ask you guys to come back in touch with some reviews to see what you thought as well. So uh, you got in touch via social media. So first of all, we have Jack, who says, best start to a new franchise since Fellowship of the Ring, but by no means as great as that one. The quality of this film will either go up or down depending on how good the sequel is. And that's exactly right. I think that's the problem with this one as well because it is half a story. At least that's the main criticism that like most people have chimed in on. Like structurally, did you guys think it was a bit lacking? I think it's uh, certainly got the intention of setting up for some, something more, something bigger, something more, more action-packed. Uh, in yeah. the sequel, so I think it's it, this is just a setup kind of film, really. It, it's not really going to come to any grand uh, conclusions, obviously. But so no. So yeah, I, I think this film's success or uh, its respective um, reputation does hinge on the sequel, which is a bit of a weird one, isn't it? As well, because it's just like a film being better in retrospect. That's that is also a franchise filmmaking to a T right now, isn't it? Like for example. The Last Jedi's existence makes The Rise of Skywalker a worse film. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> and everything's so connected and so sort of like tied to how well you pay off certain narrative shifts and whatnot. And I think, you know, Denis Villeneuve's a very safe pair of hands when it comes to that. I think he did a fantastic job with 2049, like I said. So that that worked in, in subverting a lot of what you knew about Blade Runner and paying off things that you didn't really know that you wanted paying off. Um, so I think, you know, especially with what happens in the second half of June, I think we're probably going to be fine. Um, particularly if he makes June Messiah as well, which I think he is game to do. So, you know, depending on the sequel success, we might get a third one. I know that there's going to be a HBO Max show as well. June, the but sisterhood. The yeah. 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 But the Ben Jesuit sisterhood. So, yeah. What did you think, Laura? Do you think it's particularly tied in a way that Rise of Skywalker is? It could have ended at the two-hour mark for me in film number two. Could have been, uh, yeah, it could have been tacked on to that. In a lot of ways, I loved it, but I had exceptionally high hopes for it. I've spoken before on the podcast about the trailer that came out last September, just mm -hmm. making it look like the most jaw-agape-inducing thing ever. I wanted the sci-fi equivalent of Barry Lyndon, you know, the mm. whole every frame of painting thing. Mm -hmm. And it certainly delivered on that score, but June is a bit dry, so I can't get terribly... <laughs> no pun intended. <laughs> I can't get precious about, you know, some of the hokey dialogue and stuff. I'm entirely there for the visuals, and I was really pleasantly surprised by how impressed I was by young Chalamet in my favourite scene, scene with uh, Charlotte Rampling. Oh, yeah, the Gom Jabbar. Yeah, and I too saw it in IMAX, and I, yeah, Charlotte Rampling's voice bouncing off the soles mm. of my feet, it was glorious. Also, voice with a capital V, 
because I thought, you know, the the Benny Gesserit voice in this was terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> Proper jump scares in there. It did absolutely everything I wanted it to, but I I almost wept with relief coming out of Blade Runner 2049. So <laughs> I expected Denis to deliver the goods. But yeah. there's a lot that wasn't perfect, but, you know, it's a dry six-year-old sci-fi series. That's you know, how enough. zippy and full of zing is it going to be, really? Mm, that is true. We've also got James who got in touch, who says, Honestly, I loved it. Good old Denis was back at it again with superb direction. This film is a great example of some of the best art design I've seen in a blockbuster sci-fi with everything from ship design to costume design oozing a deep sense of dread. Really shines a light on many of the often underappreciated aspects of filmmaking with costume and makeup, both really standing out as exceptional. Plot-wise, I never really found it to drag, although I think the sheer volume of quote-unquote premonition of woman in dress walking across the sand and turning to look at camera was a bit weak. I did enjoy that with a lot of the visions they didn't directly translate to scenes but instead had more of a symbolic link to how events w would unfold. Its spartan use of exposition couldn't be further from the Lynch adaptation, which was very refreshing. Also, damn, those space bagpipes do be hitting different. Flame emoji. <laughs> um, which he also elaborated on. He says... They were a nice nod to Galatian vibes, since the Spanish and Portuguese have bagpipes as well. The design of House Atreides was laced pretty heavily with cultural nods to that, between the architecture of the buildings on their homeworld and the direct link with bullfighting. And yeah, I think that's exactly it for me as well, James. It's, it's the traditions of these ancient houses finding their way all the way to 10191. That really sells this this version, but... I kind of cover that in my review a little later, so so we'll move on from that. Um, we also have Sarah, who said, I felt the world building in the film was good. I didn't feel like I needed to get everyone's backstories as to who they were and why they are, where they are. It was more like it was kept from the characters in the film and therefore the viewers in many ways. There were hints, like the recurring women wearing black, on what and who was going on behind the plot that was showed to us. So, of course, you got the Bene Gesserit plot um she also had very little knowledge of the story going in apparently but that was also something that she liked and it was like discovering and puzzling it out so many films spoon feed viewers extra information and backstories and whatnot and i didn't think that that's always needed it'll hopefully be there in part two however because the characters learn the depth of what is going on and so does the audience chris counteracted that and said so boring Honestly, felt like a 20-hour video game that had been cut down to its basic cutscenes. Didn't care for, it, for any of the characters, and half the dialogue was out of context. Like, why wasn't she his wife? So we're talking Leto and Lady Jessica here. It literally made no difference apart from to confuse me. He, uh, he also asked, Why do I care about any of the characters when I literally know nothing about them, apart from when someone mutters one line telling me how to feel? I do think that so many films spoon-feed you, but this is just the complete opposite end of the spectrum. Now, this is an interesting point because I was watching Odorovsky's Dune today and he said that you can read the first 100 pages of Dune and find out nothing, only insinuations. And I think that's the world of Dune in every adaptation to varying degrees, you know, whether it's Lynch or whether it's Villeneuve, there's always too much to capture on screen within like traditional concepts of pace or a three-act structure or whatever is going to put a bum in a seat. 
And I think that's my main problem with all of it, because every filmmaker, every writer, every editor who takes on Dune has to jettison certain things, certain character elements, certain backstory elements that would make for, you know, a more satisfying emotional experience. So I think a lot of the heavy lifting's put on A, the humanity and the empathy of the actors, and also B, the design of the world to give you that genuine sense of awe and amazement, even if you're yeah. not like emotionally hooked in. So it was always going to be a hard sell. But also, I was just about to say that I think there's also an appetite for pure spectacle nowadays. Like we totally. said, this kind of needs to be seen in IMAX because we've all been deprived of that cinematic experience for so long. So just the way that these spaceships take off and they land on the biggest screens possible and just this deep rumbling sound out of the sound systems it just hits so much more right now and i had the same thing with no time to die as well which is a pretty flawed film i think but it's often very viscerally satisfying on an imax screen because it looks pretty it's cut together really well and every bullet every gunshot just feels very impactful and sometimes that's all you really want and it's the main thing that I got out of this June, unfortunately, as well, really. And I did want a little bit more to get my heart going, but, you know, it did tick all of those spectacle boxes. You know what I mean? It's landmark cinema, for sure, isn't it? Yeah. I will pinpoint everything else that was going on in my life by June. And, you know, obviously it was due out last December. I've said a few times, oh, I'm not going back into a cinema until June. Actually, that proved to be incorrect, but... Yeah, you know, those of us that care have been invested in this for a long time. So now it's here and everyone is talking about it and everyone is arguing about it. It's just glorious. What a time to be alive. I love yeah. it. Yeah. Do you want to give your two cents, Scott? Yeah, my uh, two cents probably aren't worth very much, really. Because uh, uh, They're worth two cents? Are they? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't really have any uh, prior knowledge of the June universe. I haven't read the book. I saw the David Lynch film quite some time ago. Don't really remember it, aside from it. Maybe that's the problem with the David Lynch one. <laughs> it's just, it is. just rushed. It's just so very fast. Rushed, but they, you know. <laughs> uh, I uh, digress, because I hear it talking about the, the Villeneuve version, of course. I, I, I don't really have a re review as such, because I don't... I think it would take another viewer to do so, to have anything significant to say. Because I think, as we've established, this is a film that's resting on the sequel, really. Um, mm -hmm. I think we are going to see the, the, the set pieces more than that. Obviously, the, the whole uh, coup d'etat that goes on here, uh, that's sort of... It seems to happen all of a sudden. Obviously, it's, um, it's being preluded... Um, What's been said does sort of uh, show that this is going to happen, but it d does kind of happen all of a sudden, which, mm -hmm. which I, I suppose uh, that's how how a coup happens, isn't it? Is it, it is all of a sudden, uh, as you see, like uh, yeah. there's been a couple of uh, countries in Africa recently, uh, Sudan lately, where uh, there's been a coup and it just happens all of a sudden. Uh, so I guess it is more realistic that way, isn't it? That's also one of my points as well about the film. It's that, you know, I think what always sort of drew me to it was the fact that you can sort of like still relate these things that are going on 8,000 years in the future to what's going on today. You know what I mean? Yeah, and talking about real world, it's, it's, it's like Afghanistan, really. Yeah. Iraq is in the sense it's a it's a poor country with pre precious um, natural resource and uh, there's powerful countries that are competing to um, exploit it over uh, a long period of time 
And obviously, there's a uh, the freemen here who are like a, like a resistance of sorts uh, to this mm -hmm. to the imperialism. House of Treaties are a um, force for good. Obviously, they, they can be the America, can't they? And uh, the other house can be a uh, more, well. more of the <laughs> evil kind, more of like a. a like Russia, America? I might say Soviet. Okay. Yeah, but you, you know what I'm saying. It's, it's sort of like there's a well, yeah. In the West, the Baron is literally called Vladimir Harkonnen. So it's, yeah, it's you... so much. That's trying to present America as good, even though obviously they're not. Look at uh, mm. without going too far into politics. Look at uh, look at uh, Chile and the overthrow of Hollande uh, there in the 70s. Anyway, yeah. yeah, but this is something that's well versed in in history. It is something that's very relatable in that way, as I say, relating to coups in this world. Um, imperialism in this world, and it does translate into uh, into the Dune universe as well. Um, but yeah, I, I did enjoy it. Um, certainly, um, as I say, we're waiting for a sequel. But when that sequel has come, we can watch both of them together, and it, it might make more sense to review them together as what well, as as a five-hour film or whatever it'll be. Maybe that'll make more mm -hmm. sense. But this is certainly this. They made sure it was going to be a success. Uh, obviously, they've got. The, um, the current goat of their science fiction direction in uh, Denis Villeneuve. Uh, I don't really like that term, but uh, I'm going to use it. But it's true. Um, I've got a cinematographer in uh, Greg Fraser. This is G R E I G. Is it is it pronounced the same? Is it Greek, Greek Fraser? I think Greek Fraser. Yeah, whatever. Obviously, he was involved in the Mandalorian, which, as you know, looks very good. And, and Rogue One as well. Yeah, yeah, Rogue One too. So anything Star Wars has to look good, really. It would be a be remiss of them not to um, not to have uh, good visuals. Um, yes, thank you, Rise of Skywalker. The, the the Batman, which I'm very much looking forward to next year. I think I yeah, think that's going to be fantastic. I think yeah. uh, Robert Pattinson's going to be fantastic as well, as he has been uh, constantly post Twilight. And the editor Joe Walker was also involved in Arrival and Blade Runner 2049. So again, um, pulling out all the stops. That's that's me done really. Um, I think, as I say, I don't really have a cohesive review as such. I just have those uh, sort of interpretations via the medium of of the real world. Yeah, but yeah. Well, we're waiting to see the new the sequel, aren't we? Really. Yeah, of course. But you know, also a good sensory cinematic experience. Like you felt it in the depths of your soul, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's it's, it's great. The sandworm eating the crawl yeah. is just like. <gasps> proper kind of take your breath away cinema i mean you, you, you didn't sort of anticipate being this big i, I don't think it's gonna be that big you know sort of eating yeah, a big exactly big machine <laughs> thing like, it's damn huge. damn son shy halud himself or itself i don't know laura what do you think you went on a very long trip to go and see this didn't you i certainly did and i got actually interacted with by the boy timmy on uh, instagram for commenting this yes and my notifications have only just calmed down like three weeks later <laughs> this one comment has got two thousand likes because timmy actually responded wow um yeah so your climax had incredibly high hopes remit popped the sat stan smiths off two minutes into the film my feet have never had it so good. It was just heaven. I would like to have an eloquent and informed review for you, but I'm afraid it's more a series of responses. My investment in the Dune franchise came with the Hodorowsky documentary, really. I was fond of the Lynch version, but I didn't love it. It was just a cheesy 80s sci-fi movie with a Toto score, you know. 
Uh, I'm delighted with the film that was presented to me, but um, I'd be a fool to argue it was perfect. I had very high hopes because of Villeneuve's attachment and I thought it was cast well. Uh, yeah, as I said earlier, I wanted a sci-fi Barry Lyndon. It's just, and some of the cast switches were quite interesting. Uh, you know, Max von Sydow now. A woman? Yes, yes. Um, uh, of course, played by Sharon Duncan Brewster. Brewster, yes. It's, you know, I'm having endless fun anticipating what they're going to do with casting for the next one. Which we'll cover at the end of the episode because I yes. have some choices I'd yeah. like to see. So place your bets now, guys. But a lot of my mad love is more about the circumstances surrounding the film and the incredible response. The screening I was in, people were had under tens with them who oh, appeared. Really? Oh, of course, it's twelve years, isn't it? So. Yeah, yeah. Um, I love the idea that you know. People will remember where they were when June happened to them. I'm, I'm delighted about the little stamp it's left on history. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, I'm. I'm sure I'm not doing a great job of selling the film, but it's you know, June happened to me. It wasn't a film I saw. You know, I in years to come I'll be able to remember the memes my kids sent me about the franchise. It's just yeah, <laughs> it's a cultural phenomenon, and I'm. I love that. Yeah, and plus it's history still moving, really, isn't it? I mean, I know at least in our, you know, last review episode, Zack Snyder's Justice League, that was a definitive end to everything that that was kind of about. Yeah. It had, you know, sealed off that chapter of the franchise, probably never to be revisited again. A lot of characters are getting dropped. A lot of characters will never see them again. Zack Snyder, he's Netflix's baby now. So, um, yeah, it's just nice to have a review episode that we'll probably like be able to go back to and go, here's another little bit of history. In two yeah. years, we might do a, uh, a June 2 and then a June Messiah in 4 or whatever. <laughs> I love how the zeitgeist, for one of the first responses to this film is commenting on Momoa without his beard. In fact, Mr. <laughs> Laura's first words as we emerged from the cinema was... He looks shit with his beard shaved off. <laughs> but he's far from alone. I could reel off many others who've responded the same way. Um, yeah. But, I mean, Simon and I were talking about casting ideas earlier, and I do believe there is a marketing team trying to anticipate what's most likely to make Twitter lose their minds. I Yeah, it's the thinking about where this is going, the anticipation, it's, you know, it's a rabbit hole. Yeah, absolutely. Do you want to cover casting now, actually? Cause, yeah. Because I have some picks. I mean, there are a few characters, for example, that you know were in the first half of the Lynch film that aren't in this one, and they're also in the book. So, you know, for example, we are missing a Space Guild navigator, for one. Mm. Uh, we did not get to see much folding of space, but, you know, for those who haven't really encountered June before, a space skills navigator is somebody who's able to plot a course throughout space so you can basically travel through space without moving using the power of spice. In the Lynch version, there is a third level space skill navigator who's basically a giant newt who is kept in a large fish tank-like device 
that allows him to you know keep living they often live for thousands of years as well but there's none of that here and i think you know everything being based so much on humanity that might be somewhere that where they can take the sequel space guild navigator that's probably just going to be a voice to be honest of a maybe famous voice actor but i think there are a lot of other characters in there that could prove to be quite interesting in where they could go so we have Thade Rowther, played by Sting in the David Lynch version. Famous, of course, for walking out of the shower in his winged codpiece with that stupid come-on-then look on his face while his uncle creepily looks at him and says, Oh, Fade. <sighs> Lovely Fade. <laughs> so, who do you think is going to play him in this next one? Because he's going to be quite a nice foil to Paul, at least in their positions, rising to power, Paul becoming the messiah, Fade potentially being groomed for control of Arrakis. Who, who did you say it was this, who was playing that role in the Hodorowsky one, who was supposed to be? Oh, of course, that was going to be Mick Jagger oh, yes. in the Hodorowsky one as well, so you need somebody with like rock star presence, you know what I mean? Or at least, you know, that was the thing in the 70s and 80s. I think, you know, the way that the Harkonnens are here you know, kind of like zombie-like corpses that look like they've been embalmed, and Dave Batista looks like a giant embalmed baby. You know what I mean? It's quite terrifying, really. But uh, who do you think would be a good fade? It has to be another rock star, doesn't it? Another musician or something. Don't say Harry Styles. N- no. I-, I said rock star there. I thank you very much. <laughs> yeah, okay, you got me there. I had notions that somebody had already been cast or certainly very heavily talked about. Yes. Who is it? Um, right. Forgive the pronunciation of his surname. Barry Kialden, Irish actor from Killing of the Sacred Deer. Yes. Dunkirk. Yeah. Upcoming in Eternals as well. But it's yeah. Barry Cogan, yes. Cogan, right. Cogan, Bar- I think. Yeah, I mean, um, recollection is foggy, but I was fairly convinced it was going to be him, although I couldn't tell you why. I think there must have I just could. been... All ah, right. Um, it's, you know, about three hours after June 2 was announced, he put on a very cryptic tweet with um, a happy face emoji and also a wink face emoji. Right. So um, I'm like, yeah. Plus, you know, he looks like a small Dave Batista. And he's going to look great bald, I think. So it's probably going to be him. He's also really hot in Hollywood right now. So it's yeah. like, it, would, it would be stupid if they didn't go for him. But I did have a, a another pick that I think could be feasible because I think his schedule is quite free at the moment. George Mackay. Uh, so he is no longer in consideration for the role of Adam Warlock in Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3. That's gone no. to Will Poulter. And he's got that kind of gaunt look that the Harkonnens have in this version as well. It's also quite athletic and quite charismatic, despite his, you know, in quite intimidating physical presence. And, you know, he certainly looks like a better leader than Dave Batista does. <laughs> so, yeah, I think, I think George Mackay is a possibility, but also Barry Cogan. Mm. Has to be Barry Cogan. Jack O'Connell would do well as well. Yes, he would. He would indeed. That would be a nice kind of break from type for him because you were complaining a few episodes ago about him always playing gangsters yeah yeah no he deserves better but uh i have my dream for fade yes lovely fade 
Yes. What about Princess Irulan or Irulan? Uh, Virginia Madsen in the original. Um, was that going to be Amanda Lear in the Hodorowsky? I believe so. Yeah. You had a good suggestion for Irulan. Yes. Based largely upon all Virginia Madsen's exposition at the beginning of Lynch's June and the fact that the character was supposed to be a historian, I thought um, Thomas and Mackenzie would be very convincing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Could also work. Um, but I think that if you are really talking about how, you know, there is a marketing team designing what's going to go mad on Twitter, it has to be Saoirse Ronan. Yes. Because slight spoilers for where June goes, I guess, in the end. But this would quite nicely complete the trilogy of Saoirse Ronan and Timothy Chalamet having a very awkward romance alongside... Lady Bird and Little Women. Just this one's not directed by Greta Gerwig. <laughs> but that would give also Tumblr a lot to work with as well. Of course, Irulan has a father, the Padishah Emperor, Shaddam IV, who is the great puppet master in this whole scheme. Talked about quite a lot in the film, but never actually seen. I thought Mark Rylance would be uh, a nice pick. Yeah. You know, you've got a nice Oscar nomination. Well, sorry, Oscar win behind him so it's a nice sort of serious season fest to play him rather than pushing it towards you know like Edra Belpatine or anything you know you've got like Shaddam the fourth who's essentially just a bit of a flamboyant coward also thought that Bill Nye could be quite fun um but I also really want to see Daniel Day-Lewis come out of retirement and just play him in full Reynolds Woodcock mode so what about Ben Mendelsohn There'd be a place for him mm. in Villeneuve Universe, wouldn't there? Yeah. I um, I think... I fear that he would play it a bit to director Krennic. Mm. But <laughs> he's one of my favourite Star Wars villains, so I wouldn't be I opposed to that. I love him long time. Yes, me too. And also we have uh, Alia Atreides as well. Not too many spoilers about her, I guess, but she's a young character played by Alicia Witt. In the, in the David Lynch tune, and then played by a one-time actress in the John Harrison version. I don't think she was cast in the Hodorowsky version either, but basically in all of the adaptations so far, she's been absolutely excruciating in my eyes. So uh, we need a, a new good newcomer. Thank you very much. <laughs> this time, anyway. <laughs> I have great affection for uh, Alicia Witt in the David Lynch version. Yeah. For how can this be? Because he is the Kwisatz Hararak. If they don't end it on that line, then they're cowards. You need someone who is as phenomenally impressive as Haley Joel Osment was circa the Sixth Sense, don't you? That's true. And I don't see enough child actors to have an opinion, but, you know, that's the standard I expect. Mm. I mean, good luck casting that one then, I guess. Mm. Mm. <laughs> Um, can I go through my review? I know I've already talked a, a, a lot about what I liked, but I think one thing that jumping off from here that I did really think, you know, it's it's what draws me to the world of Dune. I think it's the fact that there are no intelligent aliens in it, for one. So it's more about humans evolving and mutating through corruption and the driving forces of capitalism and religion, right, which still motivate pretty much all aspects of our existence at least on a you know sort of like big macro level 
Um, we are still crusading for power in the Middle East, like Scott said, you know, like we were a thousand years ago. And the only thing that's changed is the technology behind the crusade. You know, space guild navigators, folding space, you know, they're only two things that you can draw direct comparisons with in the ways that the military of the Western world has exploited the resources in the Middle East. And I know that's, you know, it's a very obvious allegory, right? But I like that the core of human nature remains the same, even in 8,000 years in the future. And the real alien element of the film and in the material comes from the truly unknowable nature of the sandworms or the Shai Hulud, like I said. Uh, but otherwise, you know, everything can be traced back to the things that have been motivating the world's strongest powers for millennia at this stage. I think that Villeneuve's vision does tap into that as well, because although he does stay very faithful to the story's core elements of politics and mysticism that can be found in every adaptation, he also goes quite anachronistic with some of his designs. So although that we do have, you know, this very advanced, quite realistic shield tech around both the characters and the spacecrafts, most of the combat in the film is based on hand-to-hand -hand combat and melee weapons. So guns aren't commonplace in this version. Great for doing interesting action sequences, you know? So the Sardaukar army refer to themselves as the Emperor's Blades. Sure enough, blades are what they use to stage coups, you know? Also, some of the dogfighting uses some heat-seeking missiles, of course, but they also use bombs that very practically drill through the shields. The slow blade, or the slow bomb, penetrates the shield, as is that famous line. And I think I like that because it's tech that makes sense to the world and I think that it's that attention to detail that really makes this version work. What I think doesn't give it life is the edit that it's gone through. I think that Chris's review was right when he said that it felt like it had been cut down to its most basic cutscenes and narratively, absolutely. Um, it's considerably more patient and it has a lot more care for tension and rising stakes than the Lynch version does, which just, you know barrels through the story very perfunctorily but i began to notice even from the beginning that certain shots and beats felt like they'd just been sh chopped down to save time uh, villeneuve is absolutely a director that just thrives when he gives you a moment to let your jaw hang loose to the ground and i think that's what i love about blade runner 2049 because it's a very small story it's quite intimate but it's about very big things but in reality in the climate of modern day hollywood there's no reason for the film to be 163 minutes you know, because like Ridley Scott over the production of 2049 criticised it for being too long. Villeneuve himself has just come out recently and said that he thought that it was a disaster, which I'm not particularly convinced by. But, you know, <laughs> 2049 has just got this quality where there was always something bigger off screen. And while you're in the, the tormented, insular little world of Officer K, you won't get a chance to explore the rest of the world. And like him in the story... You are running out of time to see it. And I think that's the tension that I love about Villeneuve's work. That's only here in June in Fits and Starts. Because the design of the film is so gargantuan that, of course, you you don't get to see a lot of things. We do get to cut to Gady Prime, the Harkonnen homeworld, and Seleucus Secundus, where the Sardaukar get trained up. And there's lots of throat singing, which I, I absolutely love. Um, you know, So you see all that plotting off screen. But then you don't see the Emperor, you don't see Fade either, which is a big, big part of the second half of the story, like I said, and the, the power plays that go on there. And the scale of the adaptation here is so incredible, no one's denying that, but the way that the story's told at such a pace, which is a fast one, I don't think that that 
means that Villeneuve officially had final cut because it doesn't really feel like him. I think his vision's mostly untainted, but at least on a beat-by-beat, line-by-line basis, it's lacking in the patience of his best work, which I think is a real shame because even his longest films feel like they go by in a flash. Because you look at Prisoners, right? 153 minutes of straight-up misery porn about child abduction and the torture of disabled people. And it still flies by, you know what I mean? It just moves. Um, and, you know, June does that too, but I don't think it would have killed the film to be like half an hour longer, you know? I think if you only just vibe, if you have that vibing quality that, that Denis just like thrives with so well. So, you know what I mean? Did you guys feel that too? It was moving a bit quick. Was there much interference from Warners after the pandemic, I wonder? I don't know. In terms At least it hasn't of, been publicised. Yeah, in terms of making it palatable to the uh, HBO audience and such. I mean, mm-hmm. I know it hasn't been publicised at this stage, but I think, you know, about five years from now, it would be quite interesting to hear about it all. Yeah. Yeah. How it I all mean, went down. Yeah, absolutely. You know, there's been too much riding on this for the studio I think in the context of the pandemic like no time to die being is it going to save cinema because I don't know about the two of you but certainly when Cineworld shuttered last year I thought Christ this is the beginning of the end isn't it Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and I don't say that to be melodramatic I genuinely thought that was realistic yeah I was thinking that as well especially since like Jason Momoa who is like the whistleblower when it comes to this sort of thing right i remember he said initially you know about Zack snyder's justice league that you know his tweet saying like oh that's the definitive version and all that he said almost exactly the same thing about villeneuve's dune where he said it was you know four five hours long and it was amazing and he really hopes that everyone gets to see that version one day and i'm like well there you go there's the missing hour and a half you know every single version of june has been cut down in some sort of way i think even the the sci-fi channel you know the four and a half hour version still had things you know to take leaps and bounds over stuff that didn't really work and and all that but you know i really think that we need something like odorovsky's june to make it make sense i know odorovsky's june did a lot of things you know you had Pinter de Vries dismembering Duke Leto and all that, and like this absolutely insane torture sequence, which obviously like shouldn't really be in in the film because it's not a very faithful adaptation <laughs> and all that. But it's it's that sort of like eccentricity that I think is has been missing from all the adaptations so far. That like genuinely kind of weird, like I'm going to make the greatest film ever made, and I think that's why Hodorowsky's Dune is just so insane to even think about. Of course, it would never get made, but that's kind of why I love it. It's wild. When you get towards the end of the Dune documentary and they're going through the storyboard showing you which films have almost directly lifted shots from it. Yeah. I mean, how many films do they show then? It's so many. Mm -hmm. Yeah. My jaw is about to pop open just thinking about it. I really hope that they, uh, you know, publish the big Dune book that Hodorowsky has. There's only like two copies in the world, isn't there? Yeah. I think one's with uh, Michel Sidou and then the other one's with Hodorowsky himself. But I really hope that, you know, we get, you know, versions of that one day. That I would pay a couple hundred quid for that, you know what I mean? That would be a proper sort of like holy grail purchase. Mm, absolutely. Yeah, just mass produce that, please. And the distributors could do with releasing that documentary physically in this country. 
Yes, they could. Um, but if you are curious to watch it, uh, it is available to rent through Amazon Prime, ladies and gentlemen, at home. Amazing. So uh, I would wholly, wholeheartedly recommend it. Yeah, just if if you want to get a true essence of how adorably uh, insane Hodorowsky is, go and watch that. Or just follow him on Facebook because like either of those things are, are very nice and, and wholesome. But guys, you know what? I've got another thing to say. One thing that I thought was missing from this adaptation was the unsanitary nature of the members of House Harkonnen. Perhaps my favourite thing, actually, about David Lynch's version um, is just how vile every single member is, especially the Baron. So I've gone to the liberty of doing a little bit of a pitch for the sequel of how they could make the Baron and the Beast, Raban, a little bit more disgusting. So if Denis Villeneuve is listening to this, please consider taking this advice on board. What I've done, and yes, okay, I am admitting it this time, is that I've done a couple of impressions and I've cut an extended scene together from sounds from the BBC Sound Effects Library. The pitch for the scene, for people who've seen the film, is that it's straight after Baron Harkonnen has ordered Raban to squeeze Arrakis for all of its spice and kill all the Fremen. So picture that in your mind. Dave Bautista is leaving the room to go and do all those heinous things while Stellan Skarsgård is floating around in his oily bath. Are you guys ready to hear my ideas? As ready as I'll ever be. Absolutely. <laughs> oh, Scott, I, I, I do love you. Um, yes, yeah, so let's let's roll the tape. Oh, Raban, one last thing before you go. Yes, Uncle. I said to squeeze Arrakis, but that is not the only thing that I need squeezing. Yes, Uncle. Whatever you need. I have this pimple on my buttock that needs squeezing. Would you do that for me before you go? Yes, Uncle. Anything, Uncle. Let me roll over first. Do you need a hand, Uncle? No, Raban, no. I have... Uh, 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 there you go. Can you see it? Yes, Uncle. Now make sure you get a good grip on it and squeeze. Squeeze, Raban. Squeeze. Oh, here you go, Uncle. Oh, there you go, Raban. Now, use the bus to bless the Saduka army and our Harkonnen soldiers. Yes, Uncle. Anything, Uncle? Well, what do you think? You are a sick and depraved individual, but yes, I loved it. <laughs> well done. <laughs> well done. I'm sure uh, Villeneuve will be uh, giving you a ring shortly. Yeah, I can't wait. So tune in next time. <laughs> yeah, I did want more disgusting Harkonnen. He just looked a bit, I don't know, embalmed, like I said, you know, which is fine. But, you know, I was I was watching David Lynch's version last night and the bit where he's getting all of his, you know, zits sort mm. of like... Um, you know, spread around to people and all that, and 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 the doctor loves to sort of like collect his diseases, and and stuff. I, you know, I I think that stuff's great. 
he spits on Jessica at one point as well. That's absolutely dreadful. Like considering everything that he's done in the movie previous to that point as well. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I know that Villeneuve also referred to him as a, I think it was a human rhino or a rhino in a human skin. That's, that's what he referred to Stalin's Skarsgård's version as, but, uh, I, I would have killed for some more, you know, proper disgusting Harkonnen. So, uh, yeah, there's my version of June, ladies and gentlemen. Did you enjoy that, Laura? Yes. Yes. Very much so. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I was well, covering my mouth, so I didn't laugh. Well, no, it's okay because we could have cut around that. So, uh, no. Well, you looked amused. You looked yes. amused all the same. Yeah, that's, I was. That's, I was. That's great. Then. Well, guys, have you got any more thoughts before we wrap up today? I feel like I've been channeling the thoughts of millions via Twitter and Reddit and everything that I read prior to October the 21st and everything I've read subsequently. I'm full of June. I'm loath to share anything else because 10 cleverer people on Reddit or, and Twitter will have said it already. But I'm delighted in an opportunity to talk about it with you both. Thank you for having me. No, no worries. I, I mean, I, I knew how excited you were, so I thought, you know, that'll be absolutely terrible if we just go, and uh, your services are, are done here, Laura. Let's, uh, no. <laughs> of course not. Of course not. You can follow us as well, guys, on social media. Facebook, at Podcasters. Twitter, at Podcasters. Instagram, at Invasion of the Podcasters. Or email us, podcastersuk at gmail.com. If you have any more thoughts about June as well we'd love to hear them because it is probably the most talked about film in the world right now um what are your expectations for the sequel do you have any casting picks as well that would work let us know so please do get in touch we're always delighted to hear from you um and if that's it we'll wrap up so night night everyone good night folks good night Good night. I just love the throat singing. I'm sorry. Bye.